Well, we are uh, continuing in our series through Exodus. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to our passage today. Uh, Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 to 31. Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 to 31. Uh, It's going to go up on the screen as well, and I'll be reading from the ESV. Trusting that you're there, may God bless the reading of his holy and matchless word. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And, Moses, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death, that being Moses. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Amen. The word of the Lord. In our passage today, Moses has just finished his encounter with God at the burning bush. He's received his call to serve as a prophet and as a deliverer for God's people. And although he was reluctant, he actually protested five separate times God moved him from doubt to obedience. All this took place in Exodus chapter 3 and the beginning of Exodus chapter 4. And if you fast forward to the next chapter in chapter 5, we're going to have the story of Moses' confrontation with Pharaoh, where Moses famously says, Pharaoh, let my people go. Let my people go. And so what we have in our passage today is something of an interlude. It's in between the burning bush and in between Moses' confrontation with Pharaoh. And we're going to see how God prepares Moses to stand before Pharaoh. And I want to highlight three ways in which God prepares Moses. Uh, I never do this in the three points, but today they rhyme. Yeah, rhyming is a little cheesy in your sermon, illustrate, or sermon points, but uh, this is the, these are the three points. First, God prepares Moses through confirmation. Second, through motivation. And thirdly, through consecration. So we have confirmation, motivation, and consecration. Now, we all know the value of confirmation. 
when you're on the brink of a big decision, maybe it's a life-changing, family-shaking decision, we naturally seek assurance. We wanna know that we're making the right decision, that we're not out of our minds and doing something reckless and irresponsible, so we seek the affirmation of others, whether it's from a friend, whether it's from a family member, a pastor, or, or, or someone else. It's helpful to know that, that we're not the only ones who think this is God's leading in our life. We're not the only ones who think this is a good idea. We want to know that, that God is actually in this, that it's not just my imagination. We want confirmation. Well, in our passage, we actually have two confirmations that Moses should go and stand before Pharaoh, that Moses should, Moses should serve as a prophet and as a deliverer for God's people. The first comes from Jethro. And uh, any married men here, we know that it's not easy to get your father-in-law to approve of you. It's not easy to get him to confirm uh, what you want to do for your wife and your family. Uh, yeah, Moses' father-in-law is Jethro, and Moses asked permission from Jethro to go back to Egypt to see if his people are still alive, and Jethro tells Moses, go in peace. Go in peace. It's just three words, but I'm sure that that's what Moses so desperately needed to hear. He's about to take Jethro's daughter, Sipporah, He's about to take Jethro's grandchildren out of their homeland, out of a place of safety, familiarity, and security, and into Egypt, where they're going to be hostiles. They're going to be foreigners. They're going to be treated as slaves. Jethro says, go in peace. It's pretty obvious that Moses is still anxious about it because Moses doesn't tell Jethro all of the details. He's a little fuzzy. He's a little cloudy on those details. We're actually going to see that Jethro is not only Moses' father-in-law. He's actually something of a father figure to Moses. Jethro offers wisdom and counsel to him. We're going to see that later in the book of Exodus. But receiving Jethro's blessing was a valuable form of confirmation for Moses and his call that he's received from God. Then Moses receives an even greater and even more important confirmation. And this comes directly from God in verse 19. God tells Moses, go back to Egypt. For all the men who are seeking your life are dead. They're all dead. Now, who is God referring to? He's referring to all of Moses' enemies. He's referring to the Pharaoh, the king, who charged Moses with murder and enslaved all the Hebrews back in the beginning of Exodus. Well, that Pharaoh, that king of Egypt, he died. He died in chapter 2. And all of the other Egyptians who were seeking to harm Moses had died during Moses' 40 years in the wilderness that he spent in exile running from those people. God confirms, he says, those men are all dead. Go back to Egypt. Now, God is not telling Moses, the coast is clear, it's safe for you to go back to Egypt, as if God couldn't handle Moses' enemies. As if God had no control, had no power, had no sovereignty, and he had to just kind of wait it out. The point is at rather this. The death of Moses' enemies, it's the sign that the exodus had begun. It's the sign that the exodus had begun. You see in Exodus chapter 2, this is what God says. During those days, those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You see, we see in Exodus chapter 2, with the death of Pharaoh, 
with God remembering, with God hearing the cries of his people, the exodus, their liberation, their redemption was beginning. And this time had come. Last week in our sermon, I reminded us all that our primary call, our primary calling in life is to become disciples of Jesus and to make disciples of Jesus. But I also know that God gives us particular callings. It's not this general calling to follow Christ, to take up our cross, deny ourselves. Not this general call to go into the nations, all nations, and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He calls us particularly, some of us to be pastors, some of us to become missionaries. He calls us into relationships, to start families. He calls us into specific professions and vocations. And when people, are at, when people often ask me, how do I discern God's particular calling in my life? How do I know that this is God's leading and not just my desire? How do I know that this is God's directing and not just my imagination? Right? I encourage them to consider three things. Three things to discern the will of God, to discern the calling of God, and and there are three C's. They are conviction, counsel, and circumstance, okay? There are three practical, very tangible ways to sense God's directing and leading in your life. Consider your conviction, your counsel, and your circumstance. You see, these were all present in the life of Moses. How did Moses receive conviction? How was he stirred? How was he changed and transformed? It was through the burning bush when he encountered God himself. God tells him his name. God speaks his truth into Moses' life. He calls him to go and serve as a prophet and as a deliverer. He changes Moses. He convicts him. How does he offer counsel? It's through Jethro, his father-in-law. It's through his brother Aaron who's going to serve alongside him as a mouthpiece. It's through the elders of Israel who at the end of this passage, they see the signs that God had given Moses and they stand alongside him. They all serve as counselors. They all serve as a community to affirm Moses as this prophet and deliverer for God's people. And finally, it's through circumstance. The timing is right. Moses' enemies are all dead, right? The door is open for Moses to enter in uh, and go back to Egypt and to serve God as a prophet and as a deliverer. Do you see that, right? If you today are at a crossroads in your life and you're trying to figure out, is this God's leading? Is this God's directing? Don't go it alone. Consider how God is wiring, how, how God is moving in your heart, stirring your soul. Consider the counsel of your friends and peers. I once had a friend who was considering planting a church. All of his pastors all of his peers, all of his friends, we said, don't do it. He still did it, right? Um, the church closed down. The church died, didn't last, right? Uh, he's a good friend of mine. I lamented that journey. I know it was very difficult, very hard for him. But in his zeal to plant a church, in his zeal to do something great for the kingdom of God, he didn't consider the council. He didn't consider his community. He didn't consider circumstances. He just did what he wanted to do at great cost. Would you consider the ways that God is confirming his leading in your life through these simple ways, through the example of our our father in faith, one of our fathers in faith, Moses? Second point today is that God prepares Moses to encounter Pharaoh, to face and confront Pharaoh through motivation. 
Now, this point is not about Moses' motivation. It's actually about God revealing his own motives to Moses in the Exodus. We're going to see in this passage that God tells Moses why. Why he's going to fight for Israel. Why he's so zealous for his people. In verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. God is telling Moses beforehand, Pharaoh's not gonna listen to you. I mean, you're gonna take your staff and you're gonna turn it into a snake. You're gonna pick it back up. Pharaoh's gonna be amazed. You're gonna put your hand in your cloak and pull it out and it's gonna be leprous. Put it one time back in, second time back in, and it's gonna be healed. He's gonna be shocked. You're gonna take water from the Nile, pour it on dry ground, and it's gonna turn into blood and he's gonna be shaken. But despite all of those miracles, despite that kind of power, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. In fact, God is hardening his heart. God will harden his heart and he will not let Israel go. But that's all part of God's sovereign plan, as we see in our passage, according to his word. Now, in this section, we're introduced to a motif that runs throughout the Exodus story, the hardness and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. It's really complicated. It's a really complicated issue because if you're reading through Exodus, it seems at times Pharaoh is the one who's responsible for hardening his heart. That in moments of of, of confrontation with Moses, he is prideful. He is stubborn and he refuses to let Israel go. And then in other times and in other passages, right, Moses tells us that God is the one who is hardening Pharaoh's heart. That phrase, this dynamic, this motif shows up over 20 times throughout Exodus. And this line of thinking, this motif asks us, uh, it just kind of presses us to ask, so which is it? Is it because God is hardening Pharaoh's heart? Or is it because Pharaoh has hardened his own heart? Is it because of the sovereign decree and will of God? Or is it because of the free will of man? Which is it? Who is responsible? Well, Phil Riken, the president of Wheaton College, he reflects on this dilemma, and he writes this. It's going to go up on the screen. It's a great and helpful quote. He says, the paradox of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, it's not a puzzle to be solved, but a mystery to be adored. It's a mystery to be adored. As human beings made in the image of God, we make a real choice to accept or reject God. But even the choice we make, it's governed by God's sovereign and eternal will, okay? I mean, we can think of it over and over again, and we will rack our brains trying to figure out, is it God's sovereign decree, or is it our free will and our responsibility? And and the wonder and the majesty, the mystery of God is that, that God is able to work out all of his plans, all of his sovereign desires, all of his sovereign decrees in accordance, right, with and alongside our free will, We are still responsible. We are making decisions. We're not robots, right? And it's a mystery, but we adore our God for being that kind of majestic God where none of his plans are frustrated, right? He remains sovereign and in control of all things. And at the same time, we as humans being created in the image of God, we are still free. We are still responsible. The writer of Exodus, he understood this. Moses understood this which is why he described the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, both as the will of Pharaoh and as the will of God, right? That's the mature way to approach this paradox, this problem. It's both. It's both our responsibility, 
right? And it's both the will of God. The difference is this. Pharaoh is motivated by pride while God is motivated by love. Let me say that again. Pharaoh hardens his heart out of pride, whereas God hardens Pharaoh's heart out of love. Look at verses 22 and 23 again. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I will say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And that's foreshadowing the last plague, right? We're gonna look at the, the, the 10 plagues that God lays over Egypt. That's the last plague. But I want you to notice, what does God call Israel? Right? If we had to list out the names of Israel, we wouldn't have listed this name. We're so unfamiliar with this title, but God calls Israel what? My firstborn son. And he says, let my firstborn son, let my beloved son go that he may serve me. And this shows us the true motive and heart of God in the Exodus. It's the heart of a father. You see, church, God is not simply anti-slavery. He didn't just see the Hebrews as slaves in Egypt and say, man, that is terrible. I need to do something about it. He didn't just say, I'm a God of justice, right? I'm, gonna, I'm going to correct this injustice. That wasn't the driving motivation for God. He is pro-sonship. He's not just anti-slavery. He's pro-sonship. God is not just the breaker of chains. Sorry, little shameless game. Yeah, Game of Thrones, right? But God is our father in heaven. He's our father in heaven. And it's that love of a divine father that is motivating all that God is doing here in the Exodus story. A good example is parents. I mean, if you are a parent and you have children, you know the difference between caring for childhood hunger. We know that all throughout our country and all throughout the world, there are children who, who, who struggle with, with um, malnutrition, right? who are underfed, who go to sleep at night with empty stomachs, and that breaks our hearts. And maybe it, it, it moves us to give. Maybe it moves us to volunteer and to contribute. We know that's an issue, childhood hunger. But we have a different experience a different kind of zeal when it's your child who is hungry, when it is your beloved son, when it is your beloved daughter who is in need. You don't just write a check. You don't just have a heart that's a little bit stirred and moved. You go and you do something about it. You do whatever you can to stop your baby from crying so you can feed that child, right? I mean, even right now throughout our church, there are tons of babies and I'll see them crying and they might be hungry and I'll, I'm not gonna do anything actually. At best, I'll be like, hey, where's your mom? Where's your dad? They need to feed you. But if it's my son, right, I have a different motive, a different ambition, a different responsibility, a different burden to feed and care for and provide for my son. And in even a greater sense, slavery. Right now, even today in our world, there is the problem of human trafficking, and that breaks our hearts because that means someone's son, someone's daughter is enslaved and in bondage under a captor and being abused. And that stirs us. That breaks our hearts. But if it's your child who is enslaved, if your child has been kidnapped, what would you do? How different would your actions be? How, how much more costly would your sacrifice be? And this is the heart of God, not as somebody who's like, oh, slavery is a problem. I'm gonna do a, something about it. It's no, he sees Israel as his sons and daughters. And he has a different kind of zeal, a different kind of love, a greater and deeper motivation to liberate them, 
to save them, to redeem them. And the gospel actually tells us God didn't spare his own son so that you and I can become sons and daughters of God. This is the love of God. In the story of the Exodus, God is not simply working out freedom for the oppressed people. It's the story of God loving and liberating slaves because he loves them and he desires for them to be his sons. That's the driving motivation. That's why God is so invested, so passionate and zealous. This is the goal of the gospel, church. Not just to forgive you of your sins. Not just to wash you clean, white as snow. It's to make you his sons and daughters. The goal of the gospel is adoption. That you and I would experience God not just as our creator, that we would know Jesus not as our savior, but that we would ultimately know God as our father in heaven, that we would be able to cry out those precious words, Abba, Father, 1 John 3. See what kind of love the father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Friends, that's the kind of love that God has for you. That's the kind of sacrifice God has made through his son for you that we would be called children of God. And so we are. The final point in today's message is that God prepares Moses through consecration. Okay? The first was confirmation. The second was motivation, that Moses would know God's heart, his driving motive for the exodus, and finally consecration. What does it mean to consecrate? It means to set something apart, to remember holiness. What happens next is a really bizarre scene. As Moses is traveling back to Egypt with his family, Jethro said, go in peace, right? Go in peace. Uh, We're told that suddenly God is angry with Moses and God intended to kill him. And then his wife, Zipporah, intervened. And what she did is she took a flint, and that's a stone knife, and she cut off her son's foreskin and circumcised him. She then touches Moses' feet with it and declares that he is a bridegroom of blood to her. It's a bit gory, really bizarre and confusing. I mean, what's going on here, we have to ask. In one moment, God is blessing Moses. He's confirming Moses. He's speaking to Moses. And in the next, he's angry with him. In the next moment, he's about to kill Moses. Why? Because God is reminding Moses that he is holy. God is reminding Moses of what it means to be part of his covenant people. You see, we have to ask this question. Why did God have mercy on just Israel? At this time, Israel is not the only enslaved people in the world. Slavery was common throughout the world at that time. There were slaves in the Roman Empire, slaves in the Assyrian Empire, slaves in the Egyptian Empire. Why did God only work to liberate these Hebrews, this small nation of Israel? And the answer is this. God chose to liberate them because of his covenant with Abraham. God remembered his covenant and his promise with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17, back in Genesis chapter 12. That was the basis of God's faithfulness. That was the basis of his love and his action. He had made a promise 500 years previous to Moses' ancestors, to Abraham and his offspring. And as God remembered his covenant with Abraham, God was reminded Moses you have to remember that as well. I'm not the only one that's gonna remember this covenant. Moses, you must. Israel, you must remember 
our covenant as well. If Moses intended to serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he then had a covenant obligation, a covenant duty to circumcise his sons, but he hadn't done it. He didn't put the sign of God's covenant, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant on his sons. Look at me with Genesis, at Genesis 17, verses 10 to 14. This is the Abrahamic covenant and the sign that God gives uh, Abraham. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Do you see why that's important? You see, circumcision was literally the distinguishing mark of God's people. It was a sign that they were the sons and daughters of Abraham. It was a sign that they were members in God's family. God's covenant community. But God warned them, if you do not circumcise your sons, you will be cut off. You will be cut off. Two things we see from this passage. The first is this. We must remember the covenant. There is great importance in keeping the covenant of God. And one of the chief ways we do this is by observing the signs of the covenant. You see, church, we too, we're in covenant with God. Okay? For Israel in the Old Testament, for the Jews, that sign that you were in the covenant, it was circumcision. What is it for us? It's baptism. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant in Christ. And what we see in Colossians chapter 2 is Paul connects these two signs between circumcision and baptism. In Colossians 2.11, this is what Paul writes. In him, you, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, no flints, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Important qualifier, you are not saved by the sign. The Jews were not saved because they were circumcised. Christians are not saved because we are baptized. No, it's the other way around. Because we are saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to wear the sign of the covenant. We need to experience that sign. We need to be baptized. Oftentimes people ask me, Pastor, is it okay for me as a Christian not to be baptized? The answer is no. The answer is no. If you are saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the call is to be baptized. That's, what it, that, that's the outward sign of an inward reality. It's the outward sign of an inward reality. Let me give you an example of this. I mean, all the married men here, all the married men here, on that wedding day, when it's time to exchange the rings, you exchange your vows, you're about to be married and united with your wife, you put the ring on your wife and she says yes, and with this ring I thee wed, and then it's her turn to put it on your finger and you say no thank you. What's gonna happen? If you say, oh, we're married, but I will not wear the ring. That's, the, that's an unhealthy marriage, right? That's an awkward sign. That's like, yeah, 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 yeah. We're, we're married spiritually. You know, we're married in intent, but I'm not going to wear the ring. I'm not going to tell the world. I'm not going to show and embrace the sign that we are married. Now, I know there's some guys that don't wear rings. It's just uncomfortable, or you lost it, and you never bought a new one. That's okay. You know, it's, you work that out with your wife, 
right? <laughs> but it's another thing to refuse the sign. It's another thing to refuse and reject the sign. And this is why obedience matters, because the relationship matters. The sign is an outward symbol of an inward reality. So brothers and sisters, have you been baptized? Parents, would you, have you, will you baptize? Have you baptized your children? Not as a religious rite, but in faith, because you are a member of this covenant family, and you believe your children are members of God's covenant family. The covenant and the promise is for us, and if we receive it, we should embrace that. We should wear it. We should live it out. Moses didn't. Moses didn't, right? He didn't obey God. He didn't take the sign of the covenant seriously. He didn't have his sons circumcised on the eighth day, and it almost cost him his life. That's how seriously God takes the covenant. That's how seriously God takes the signs of the covenant. The second thing that we see is that Moses is spared by the obedience of another. His wife, Zipporah, she realizes something's wrong. She sees that, 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 that God is about to kill her husband. He's gonna end all of this. His life is in danger. She realizes, oh, our sons have not been circumcised. They're not in line with the covenant of Abraham. And so she circumcises her son and takes the foreskin and touches Moses with it. Moses is passive. He's disobedient in this story. But it's through the obedience of another that Moses is spared. Do you see the gospel in this church? This is a gospel story that in the midst of our disobedience, we deserve death. We do. We deserve the curse of God. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But it's because of the obedience of another. It's because of the righteousness of another. We are saved because of the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, because of his bloodshed work. We are spared. We are saved. We can become the sons and daughters of God. Friends, that is the gospel message. You and I, we are saved not by our obedience, but by the obedience of Jesus Christ, the obedience of another. And that's such good news because even on our best days, friends, we all fall short, don't we? Even when we intend it, we can start off a morning, do our quiet time, say our prayers and say, God, this day, I will abide in you. This day I will walk by faith and not by sight. And then someone cuts you off on the freeway and you're already cursing, you're already angry and you're already reckless, right? We are saved and spared by the obedience of another. Do you see that? Will you receive that? Moses does. And in the end of our passage, we see that he hooks up with his brother and Aaron and they go before Israel they perform the signs and wonders that God had given them. The elders of Israel, they are amazed. All of Israel is, is gripped by this promise, gripped by the signs, gripped by the good news that they will be delivered, that they will be saved. And they worship God. They worship God because of his promise. They worship God because of his power. They worship God because of his presence. Friends, will you? Will you experience what it means to be part of the covenant people of God? Will you accept the perfect work of Jesus Christ on your behalf so that you can become a son and a daughter of God today? 
And I want to say a final word to Christians who are in disobedience. Okay. Friends, it's not just the, the legalists that are in danger of missing the gospel. You see, there's some of us here that are like, I need to earn it. I need to obey. I need to do all the right things and get right with God. I need to get myself right with God. Well, our message today tells us that that's impossible. And the good news of the gospel tells us that, that Christ is our obedience. Christ is our righteousness. He is the perfecter of our faith. But there's a second part of us that then thinks, man, obedience doesn't matter. I'm good. I have Jesus Christ as my defender and my shield. Jesus Christ obeyed, so I don't have to. And friends, that's not the gospel either. If you think that your obedience doesn't matter, if you think that it's okay for you to live in disobedience, learn from the example of Moses. No, God calls us to obey. God calls you to obey. And so I want to say to the many Christians here today, are you taking obedience seriously before God? If you are called by the grace of Jesus, a son of God, if you embrace and experience and receive that title of being a daughter of God, are you living up to that calling? Are you living in that reality as a son and as a daughter of God? Are you following and trusting God as your father in heaven? Because if you're living in disobedience, you're actually not. You see, the covenant of God is something for us not just to receive it, but we're also to respond to it. We're supposed to live as the covenant people of God. Would you consider your ways? Would you consider your obedience with God? And would you do so for his glory and live lives that are worthy of the gospel? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you that you are present in our lives, that you speak to us, that you direct us, that you lead us. And I pray for anyone here right now who's in the midst of trying to discern your will, in the midst of that crossroads, would you make your voice and your leading clear. Help us to confirm your call in our lives. Give us the courage and faith to follow and trust in you, even if you lead us into difficult and challenging circumstances. May we trust in you as our good shepherd. Father, I pray that you would help us to truly receive your love, that we would not merely be objects of your pity, that we would realize that we are objects, we are people of your affection, that you have loved us, you have ransomed us through the bloodshed work of Christ because you love us as your sons and daughters. Would you speak your love into our hearts? Help us to live in that and out of that identity. Give us joy. Give us intimacy. Give us a heart that trusts you and obeys. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray.